Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here at the home of Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. You're back. It's great to have you back, Andy. It reminds me of like high school sleepovers. <laughs> and our audience will appreciate it because I think we'll have better audio quality today because we're not using Zoom or a phone or we're just using some high quality podcast equipment for a change. But enough uh, inside baseball. Um, so the big news of the week did not take place in Ukraine. It took place in the uh, dusty halls of the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., where they saw fit to cite the work of uh, Akhil Amar. Yeah, there, there were some other important things that happened last week, like uh, um, the, the election of the French president. And, and yes, there are important things in the world. So Andy, of course, is, is being puckish when he says that. Um, uh, uh, very eventful um, week in the world with uh, uh, democracy um, and um, centrism uh, uh, holding on in, in France, which is very important for, for Europe and for the free world. Indeed. Um, but nevertheless, we are happy that the court uh, saw fit to note Akil's work. And well, not, and let me just, I'm, 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 you know, cutting myself down to size before others leap uh, uh, to the front of the line to do so. Not so much the court, but one justice um, in a concurring opinion. And indeed, one of the things we may talk about today, because we're going to talk about um, uh, the interface between scholars and judges. Um, it's an important part of the uh, constitutional law ecosystem that we continue to explore together in this podcast. I think I may have made this point in an earlier episode. If not, I've definitely um, made it elsewhere that um, you're particularly like to, likely to get citations to scholars in separate opinions and concurrences and dissents and not in majority opinions. There are three or four reasons why that's so, and we can go into them um, when we when uh, in later in this conversation. Okay, well, the case was United States versus Jose Luis Vallejo Madero, um, and you were cited in the uh, concurrence of Justice Thomas. Um, so, and, and we should remind our audience what a concurrence is. So let's just take um, the audience back to the days of the Supreme Court before John Marshall. Um, the court in general, um, before Marshall, was characterized by seriatim opinions. Um, each justice, and there were six in the, on the original Supreme Court, spoke for himself, and often um, it was um, an orally delivered decision. And uh, sometimes there were reporters, lawyers, or others in the courtroom, in effect, transcribing what the individual uh, judges said. Um, this is a tradition going back to uh, the courts in England. But there wasn't, in general, an enduring and consistent practice prior to Marshall of a written opinion of the court. Um, uh, there, were, there were kind of irregular movements in this direction under Oliver Ellsworth, who basically, in effect, succeeded. John Jay was the first Chief Justice, and then there was a very brief interlude in, involving 
John Rutledge a recess appointment to the chief justice position that uh, the Senate never uh, confirmed. Ellsworth comes along, and then Marshall is going to be our fourth um, chief justice. Uh, Ellsworth flirted under under the Ellsworth court. Um, there began to emerge sometimes uh, an opinion of the court, but it wasn't consistent and sustained and, and not in constitutional cases, and Ellsworth wasn't around um, enough. Uh, so when John Marshall comes along, he introduces an important shift. And this is discussed, by the way, in uh, the recent uh, my recent book, The Words That Made Us, in a chapter on John Marshall. He introduces, or at least cements in place, the idea that there's going to be a written opinion that purports to speak for the court as an institution, ideally for at least a majority of the court. In Marshall's era, often he tries uh, to uh, speak for a unanimous court, and if there are dissents, sometimes there are they're suppressed. People don't openly express their, their disagreement. So um, today there, we have this institution that really John Marshall helped cement an opinion of the court um, in which one justice typically takes the lead, not always, but um, sometimes several do, but typically one uh, justice takes the lead in trying to compose a statement of reasons for the result that can win the um, acquiescence of uh, at least a majority of the court. Um, and that's called a majority opinion of the court if it succeeds. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the court agrees in the result and the disposition, but they can't agree on a set, set of reasons. Um, so there might be what's called a plurality opinion. Four justices agree that the result of the nine uh, agree that the result should be X for the following reasons, and, and maybe a, a fifth or a sixth or a seventh um, agree um, in the result... Um, but not in the statement of reason. So then you, you wouldn't have a majority opinion of the court, you'd have a plurality opinion of the court. Um, now, um, let's just take this the simpler case. You've got a majority opinion of the court, and then people sometimes issue concurring opinions. Um, now, if you disagree with the result, then you're going to issue a dissenting opinion. A concurring opinion typically is a justice who says, I agree with the result of the court. I agree with the reasons that the court put forth. Um, I join the opinion of the court. There are, in fact, in a typical case, at least five justices who all agree in a written statement of reasons. But a concurring justice writes separately, either for himself or herself, or um, sometimes um, others uh, join in, saying, Although I agree with the result the court has reached today, and although I agree with the statement of reasons in this opinion for the court, I have some other things that I'd like to get off my chest. I'd like to maybe have additional um, arguments or refinements, um, and, and I will put them in a separate opinion. It's a concurring opinion. And um, because I'm speaking for myself, maybe I get some others to join me, maybe not, I have additional degrees of freedom that you may not have when you're trying to get five justices to agree. Um, so um, there are several reasons, as I said, that you're more likely to see uh, um, citations to scholarship in a concurring opinion or a dissenting opinion. You don't have to get four others to agree. 
maybe you're using this concurrence to float a new idea in the hopes of changing the law um, over the next several years. And so this is a trial balloon. When you're a dissent, maybe very often you will cite to scholarship because you, your position has not commanded a majority of today's court, but you want to appeal to a different kind of authority um, for your result uh, from, from a prominent um, scholar. So, so you're much more likely to get appeals to scholarship in concurrences and dissents that don't have to get four other justices to go along than you are in opinions of the court. Court, under Marshall, you made the point that frequently they were unanimous, they spoke with one voice yes. uh, much of the time, even if maybe they weren't really unanimous. Right, but the world didn't know that. Right, I understand. But the point is, though, that, and you also made the point that um, in a concurrence, you're more likely to, you know, go off with all sorts of scholarship because you're not really seeking consensus. Yes. But similarly, the J Court doesn't appear to have sought consensus in reasoning. They may have sought only consensus. Yes. And so that that's a different dynamic. Right. And, and so my question is, what was the effect of that dynamic on the, the way that the power of these opinions. Well, the, the, because the court is not speaking with one voice, and the voice was John Marshall's voice, it's not just that there were opinions of the court. He almost always authored the opinions, and sometimes he actually authored opinions that he didn't quite himself agree with, um, but that he thought re- reflected the consensus of the group. He's trying to build up a court that doesn't, ha- very famously, in the language of... Federal 78 has neither purse nor sword, but merely judgment. Congress has to spend a lot of money. That's a lot, that power to be able to, to, to dole out um, money to your friends or your pet projects. So, oh, the Congress has a lot of power and a lot of people in it. And um, behind each member of Congress, there's a whole bunch of folks back home who voted for, for that member. So um, Congress has people power and it has... Uh, purse power. The president famously has the power of the sword. He's the commander-in-chief. He can do all sorts of things unilaterally, and even if they're uh, problematic, sometimes they're fait accompli and they're hard to, to, to undo. So, um, and, and the president is one person, and he can move very quickly. Okay, so there are advantages to that, um, and he also has a national mandate of a certain sort, although they wouldn't have put it that way at the founding, but, but, but he is continentally selected, um, and there are lots of members of Congress, and they've got money. Now, the justices are neither fish nor fowl. It's not the unity um, of one person, and it's not the the broad representativeness of 80 people in the House. It's 65, actually, in in the first House, but it grows very quickly, quickly uh, passes 100. So if they don't have the purse, and they don't have sort of regular re-election the way the House does, and they don't have you know, commander-in-chief power and, and all these other um, powers, then Marshall is going to try to come up with something else that they do have. They have the power of a common statement, okay? Because the, the House speaks with many different voices, um, and, um, and the President speaks with one voice, and Marshall's trying to actually emulate, in some ways, the power of the presidency speaking with one institutional voice. 
Well, and there's a certain degree of consensus, whereas the president is just the president. Yeah. Okay. So um, you've been cited frequently over the years. Um, and uh, But who's counting? And the answer is, I am. Um, and, we, and we should talk about that. Um, so uh, it's embarrassing, but true, that if you look at my Yale Law School website page, um, which I helped compose, um, I, I basically did compose um, in, in the main, one of the first things I tell you, you the, the, the reader, is that I've been cited uh, across the spectrum. This is important to me. It's not just the conservatives. It's not just the liberals. It's not just the moderates. It's, it's you know, all the, the wings of the court. I've been cited across the spectrum in more than 40 Supreme Court cases. This is among the first four sentences I have in my own, in effect, a biography on my uh, Yale uh, Law School um, webpage. And I go on to tell you, the, the reader of that webpage, that that is tops in my generation. Um, that, in fact, there's no one under, I think now, the um, age of 80 who's currently living, who has more citations, and uh, who's been cited by more Supreme Court opinions. And sometimes they're in dissents, and sometimes in concurrences, and sometimes they're in the opinions of the court, the majority opinions. Um, there's no one under 80 who's been cited more often than that. So um, I do keep track, because that's one among many metrics of um, intellectual um, influence um, and achievement. So you're more likely to be cited then in uh, concurrence than in the, the main opinion in e general? Everyone is. All, all scholars, you, you, you have a much higher density of academic citation in separate opinions than in opinions of the court. And, and another way of putting it, I mean, again, they're, they're different, is, you know, um, uh, an opinion of the court, you, you, you know, every, every person who joins it has a kind of a veto on any um, a sentence or paragraph, a, a blackball, if you will, saying, oh no, you know, Amar's such a bloviator, you know, I'll agree to this opinion, but let's please delete that, that proposed citation to Amar. But do you value your citations in the main opinion more than your citations in the concurring opinions? Sure, it would be a sign, actually, of achieving a broader level of judicial consensus to be cited in a majority opinion. Um, uh, I think I told you, uh, I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not, um, uh, when I complimented Stephen Breyer um, once, and I had clerked for him, of course, um, our audience knows, when uh, he was on the first Circuit Court of Appeals, it was his first year on the court, on the Supreme Court. He had authored this really powerful dissent. I'm not sure I agreed with it, um, but a very powerful dissent in a case called Lopez. It was about the scope of Congress's um, power to regulate interstate commerce, and he thought Congress had the power to pass the, uh, the Gun-Free Schools Zone Act, which made it a federal crime to use a gun in or near a school in certain ways. Um, and the majority says, gee, that's something left to states. That's, that's not really a matter of interstate commerce. It, it's not really, there's no really strong um, interstate um, dimension to guns in schools, said the court. Um, and it's not really narrowly economic. Justice Breyer dissents. It's a, and I told him, 
you know, a, a boss. I said judge. I usually don't call him justice. Um, you know, I, I may say boss or judge. I said, um, this is as impressive a, an opinion as anyone that I can remember has written in his for or her first term. Later on, Elena Kagan will write a very impressive dissent in a case involving um, public financing in Arizona, but she was not on the court yet. And I said, it's empirical, it's pragmatic, it's deferential to the legislature, it's very pro-education, um, it's, in a word, Brandeisian. Um, and these are many of your themes. It really, it's, it's your voice, this is your vision, and and very few um, folks, um, none really that I can remember in his or her first year has has done something you know that authentic and impressive. And he just looked at me and he gave, flashed a little sad smile and he held up four fingers. Because uh, he said, in effect, he's saying, Akil, I, I wasn't trying to write a dissent. I was trying to you know, <laughs> speak for the majority and, and I didn't. Um, so... And, and you might feel that way as an academic. Okay, great. I got to, I got cited. I got cited by some of the justices on uh, one or more of the justices on the Supreme Court. But sure, wouldn't you rather be on the winning side than on the losing side? And if you're on the winning side, wouldn't you want to rather um, have five or more justices um, vouch for you than um, in an opinion of the court than one or two or three um, um, in a concurrence? Sure. I mean, I could see, a, you know, an argument against that. I could, I could see if you have a pet theory, you know, a theory that, that hasn't been embraced by the court but which you feel is important and you want the court to embrace, you feel that would send the law into a much more a sensible direction consistent with the Constitution, and it's cited in dissent or, uh, and then eventually becomes... Oh, but that's know, what you hope, yes. You, but you're still hoping eventually it's in a, first in a concurrence or first in a dissent. But you know the gold standard, what you eventually want to reach, the promised land, Nirvana, is that's a, the, the a majority. You know, um, not only getting the right result, not even not only getting the right result for the right reason. Oh, but you know, getting the right result. For the right reason, and citing you, <laughs> well, okay. if you're an academic of a certain sort. Right. But I mean, I, I, you know, I, I mean, this is all an academic discussion, if yes. you will. But, uh, but uh, you know, as one who will never be cited by the Supreme well, Court. Well, I never I, say never. Right. We've got the ISL article where I'm, you know, yeah. but uh, I'm not an author. Uh, but Well, that may happen. I, uh, I would think that to be... If you have a really impactful idea, it's one that it hasn't yet been accepted. That's you know, it's not mm -hmm. impactful if it's already accepted. You know, so you hope so. that the first site won't be the last site, right. and yes, it it's now out there in the discourse. It's not yet the mainstream, but it is you know a stream that you hope will eventually become the mainstream. Right. I mean, and I think the analogy to among the justices would be like Justice Harlan, right? The great dissenter, right? Well, wh why do we care that he was a great dissenter? <laughs> because he eventually, his, his point of view became accepted, but he, you know, was the one that had the vision to see it when no one else did. Sure. So, so that's... So you're right. It, it is, it, it can be, um, you know, uh, particularly gratifying to know that what you were saying isn't merely conventional wisdom. Um, 
And, and one sign of that is it initially is a dissenting position. Um, and, and so you're not just, um, you know, a, a, if there were a, a football or something, piling on you know, to, um, a, a, after the play is basically over. You're also not whistling past the graveyard that someday you know, it does get accepted. So, so if we look at your career of many citations, then can you think of a particular... Um, doctrine or that or idea that you had that started that way and wound up be, becoming widely accepted. Sure, in the confrontation clause, uh, jurisprudence, um, uh, there has been a thing called the Crawford Revolution. It's a it's a different way of thinking about the confrontation clause, and um, it began. Um, with, uh, Justice Thomas actually floated the idea in a separate opinion. His, his first few months on the court, in fact, he 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 saw a different way of thinking about this issue, building on um, an idea that I think appeared in one of the briefs in the case by the United States. He saw it. I read it. I said, "Hmm, this is interesting." I did a lot more research, and I built it up a little bit, elaborated it some more. Um, Justice Scalia, at a certain point, in a separate opinion, began to to talk this way. Um, another academic named Richard Friedman at the University of Michigan, a great evidence scholar, um, began to see it um, in in a somewhat similar way. And then, in an opinion uh, for the court, majority opinion, uh, uh, Justice Breyer actually wrote a, a concurring opinion, um, saying, "Hey, this might be interesting." And then eventually an opinion of the court in a case called Crawford, um, authored by uh, Justice Scalia, this idea, which had at a certain point just been a mere academic theory, became the reigning uh, Supreme Court way of thinking about the Confrontation Clause. Now, that said, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas actually thereafter um, interpreted this idea uh, that they had agreed on in Crawford in rather different ways. And, and, and going forward, I tended to be much more sympathetic to Justice Thomas's formulation than Justice Scalia's formulation. Um, but that was an example of something that I helped develop. Another example, um, we've talked about it in this uh, podcast, is um, at a time when almost no mainstream constitutional scholar, um, even talked about the Second Amendment, and the ones that did said, oh, it's only about a militia right and nothing uh, else. Um, uh, for various reasons, And when I, uh, I, I had come to the position that there is an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, um, I'm not a gun person myself, um, so this isn't my personal political view, it, it was just my view as a scholar, and when I first started writing about this, there was only one mainstream constitutional, one or two mainstream constitutional scholars that ever even talked about the Second Amendment. And Justice Thomas actually um, cited some of the things that I had written in a concurrence, actually in a case called Prince, um, involving the Brady Bill and, and states' rights, whether states could be... Um, uh, required to help enforce um, a, a federal um, a gun registration uh, program. So uh, I write some stuff. Thomas actually picks up on it in a concurrence. Um, eventually, the Supreme Court, um, and, and actually says, 
we should revisit our Second Amendment jurisprudence at some point. We really haven't decided a major Second Amendment case since the 1930s, um, a case called Miller. Um, eventually, uh, Justice Scalia will write an opinion for the court with five votes in a, a case called Heller, um, reading the Constitution in an individual rights way. I actually am not such a fan of what Scalia wrote. I write a piece about Scalia's opinion in the Harvard Law Review, um, a, a critique saying he gets the right result, but I don't think he actually quite gets the reasoning right. The court will revisit the matter in a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald, applying this um, individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection against states and localities and not just the federal government. The original Second Amendment limited the federal government, but under uh, uh, the, the, uh, an idea called incorporation, uh, almost all the provisions of the Bill of Rights, which originally applied only against the federal government, have come to be applied against states and localities. And the same thing happened for gun rights, as happened previously with speech and press and petition and assembly and, and free exercise and um, right to be free for unreasonable searches and seizures and all sorts of provisions in the Bill of Rights that originally applied against the federal government have come to apply against the states. And that happens with gun rights in a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald. And yeah, I'm really proud of the fact that in that decision, um, I'm cited nine times. But, but who's counting? And the answer is I was. And it's a single case. Um, counts as only one of the 42. Um, but Justice Alito, who wrote an opinion of the court um, that had f five votes, um, cited me, I think, six times, and Justice Thomas writes a concurrence because he has got a slightly different take on the thing. Um, cited me a couple times. Justice Breyer dissented, but he cited me too because they all, they disagreed. Um, um, uh, Breyer in result, um, Thomas in rationale um, from Alito, they, they disagreed with each other, but they kind of all agreed, oh, Amar is saying stuff that we should take seriously. Those are two examples. I could give you some um, additional ones that where I haven't yet got my fifth vote. But Please I'm give still me hoping. one that doesn't involve Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia. Okay. So, um, <laughs> and I, Justice Alito. I believe, and, this, and I'm proud of the fact that this is across the spectrum. So I believe that the... Um, 11th Amendment to the Constitution um, should be read rather narrowly and not for a sweeping idea of state sovereign immunity that enables states to violate federal constitutional rights and get away with it. Um, um, my uh, um, idea is, is uh, uh, sometimes called, and we won't get into all the technicalities, the diversity theory of the 11th Amendment. They it, they were two other very prominent scholars that almost at the same time um, were putting forth the same idea, although with slightly different um, uh, chains of um, evidence and reasoning. One is uh, Willie Fletcher, who, uh, then a professor at University of California Law School in Berkeley, um, is then called Bolt Hall, who later became a Ninth Circuit judge. Um, there was a judge on, on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit named John Gibbons. Willie Fletcher wrote a piece in the Stanford Law Review saying, um, uh, here's how to think about the 11th Amendment. Very good piece. John Gibbons, almost the same time, writes a major piece in the Columbia Law Review. I'm saying, here's a way to think about the 11th Amendment. Different line of argument, but they kind of converge in result. I'm a third-year law student at the time, and I said, oh, shit. 
You know, this is my paper. I'm writing it for my teacher, and now I've been preempted in a way. You know, because these guys have beaten me to the punch. Upon reflection, I realized I'm actually, even though I'm agreeing in result, I've got a different um, proof in effect of the Pythagorean theorem, or a different way of getting there. So I published my idea in the Yale Law Journal. Um, Fletcher was in Stanford. Um, uh, Gibbons um, was in uh, Columbia. This becomes one part of my first big shaggy dog article written as a law professor called Of Sovereignty and Federalism, which has been cited a lot by Supreme Court justices, but also a lot by scholars. It's one of the 70 most cited articles of all time by, by um, legal scholars, which is a different citation metric than Supreme Court cites. And the liberals tend to like my idea that, of, um, that we shouldn't have... Um, uh, state sovereign immunity that lets states violate federal constitutional rights and get away with it. So the problem is I've only got four votes for that, not ever five, although you know I, I am still hopeful. Um, I believe that peremptory challenges should be abolished. I'm an abolitionist in, in that. No, we're not talking about the death penalty. We're talking about peremptory challenges. Peremptory challenges enable lawyers uh, defense attorneys, yes, but also prosecutors to ding people from the jury. They, sh they, they get their jury summons. They show up as good citizens. They answer all the questions um, that are propounded to them by the judge and the, the attorneys in a process called voir dire, you know, just, um, and, and without any reason, each side is, is allowed today to dismiss a certain number of jurors peremptorily without explaining that they are biased for this reason or that reason. Peremptory challenges are used and have always been used to keep people off the jury, in my view, for discreditable reasons. Technically, you're not supposed to be able to keep someone off just because they're black, but, people, uh, but lawyers do it all the time. They keep people off because they're black, because they're, too, they're, they're old, they're young, they're gay, they're women, and so they're not, the court has begun to rein in peremptory challenges just a bit in the modern era, but as a practical matter, as long as you allow lawyers to ding people without having to explain their reasons, they're going to do it for discreditable reasons because they, they're going to engage in all sorts of stereotyping of certain sorts. Stereotypes sometimes are, on average, true. They're generalizations. So lawyers are going to try to to manipulate the composition of the jury to favor to create a demographic that they think is favorable to their side, whether prosecution or defense. So I say we should get rid of it. Now I'm not the first person to say it. Thurgood Marshall said it long ago, um, but um, uh, several justices have cited me um, for the proposition that we should get rid of peremptory challenges. Steve Breyer. Um, uh, David Souter. I could give you a whole bunch of other e examples because um, I've written about lots and lots of topics. Just on the peremptory challenges, I think it's actually, you know, you, you talk about uh, reading the Constitution holistically and, and intertextualism, you know, combining. I think that you have a number of theories that actually are best understood when they're viewed as a whole. I think yeah. when you combine peremptory challenges with getting rid of unanimous verdicts, which is another thing that you've, you've talked about in some cases. If you're going to bring in more diversity onto the jury, it's going to be harder to insist that the jury be unanimous now. We don't insist that the House of Representatives is unanimous. We don't insist that the Senate is unanimous on anything. We don't insist that the justices are unanimous. Um, um, we don't insist that grand juries 
are unanimous. They are typically composed of 23 people, and, and 12 suffices to indict. We don't insist that civil juries are unanimous. So I raise a question, why must criminal juries be unanimous? Right now, we achieve a false unanimity by excluding certain extremes from the jury room. They're not, um, to borrow from Lynn Miranda, in the room where it happens, and so it's easier to get unanimity because you've, you've chopped off the, the, the tails in a, a distributional curve. Um, another thing that... Um, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, if you're going to ask why, it's best to ask the question, why? Why you not, why? Yes, we don't require the House to be unanimous, but we do require... Well, that's a statement meaning that we don't want to make a mistake. Ah, but here's one other thing, though. Um, A jury that hangs 11-1 in the defendant's favor is a hung jury and is thrown out. So you might say, we especially don't want to make a mistake. We don't want to have an erroneous conviction. Mm -hmm. We think it's better that, in general... um, that um, some guilty folk go free than an innocent person erroneously is convicted. But the jury unanimity idea right now is formally symmetric. So if the jury hangs 11-1 in the defendant's favor, the defendant can be retried. Now the prosecution maybe learns from the mistakes it makes in the first trial. Let's imagine it gets a unanimous conviction the second time. Well, it looks unanimous. It looks like 12-0. But from a certain point of view, it's actually 13-11. They got one vote in the first uh, trial, 12 in the second. Thir- and and so, so I say, if you did a, a Mars world, and you're right, because I'm, I'm seeing things systematically and holistically, and there are a whole bunch of changes I'm proposing simultaneously, we abolish peremptory challenges, um, our juries are more diverse than ever before. We're letting more people into the um, process. Because of that, it may be harder to get unanimity. Okay, So we may need to modify the rules of unanimity in certain ways, but let's do so asymmetrically so that actually, um, let's, for example, anything, um, t- uh, let's say, imagine that 9-3 um, for conviction suffices to convict if the defendant gets any more than three, and, and we need to specify in the first week or the first 10 days, you know, there's going to need to be time for there to be, for, for Henry Fonda to persuade other folks. Um, okay, but if it's, um, if it's 9-3 or 10-2, it convicts, but anything else is an acquittal, you see, because right now it would be a hung jury. Um, in an impeachment trial, um, Bill Clinton was acquitted because there weren't two-thirds to convict. Donald Trump was twice acquitted because there weren't two-thirds to convict. So th- there's another example. We don't insist on unanimity in, in impeachment, which is a, you know, a, somewhat akin to a, a, a criminal trial. In certain respects, in other respects, it's not. It's, it's sui generis. It's, it's, it's unique. Yeah, I, don't, I don't buy that one. Um, I mean, because you have to allow for partisanship at some level. Maybe you get some people in the par- other party to... You know, to be reasonable, but you're always going to have some kooks. And, and, and that's true in the society as well. And right now, I admit, some kooks are peremptorily challenged and they're excluded from the process. I further admit that in a Mars world, you're going to have more kooks on the jury. And that's precisely why, you know, you're not, it, it may be unrealistic to insist on unanimity. Now, Maybe everything that I said you you don't agree with you, you know you you can say that's all but yes you're you're right Andy 
um, I'm trying to see the thing holistically and systematically. And if you make a change over here, that sometimes has implications over there. Right. But it, it is interesting, actually. But my understanding is that you, you came up with, a, with a, a talk about a whole bunch of changes on the jury. Uh, yes. Having to do with juries, like on the plane out to, to California. Yes. Ten, like uh, reinventing juries, 10 suggested reforms. Now, in, let's take the Fourth Amendment as just one other example. Since you, you said, you know, you know uh, tell me something other than Thomas and, and, and Alito. Because, um, yes, on the confrontation clause, just um, that wasn't just a Scalio and Thomas idea. It was a Steve Breyer idea as well. So that one um, cut across the ideological spectrum. Guns was liberals versus conservatives. On sovereign immunity, it, I, I, it was liberals versus conservatives, and I was with the liberals. On getting rid of peremptory challenges, it's basically liberals, conservatives, and I was with the liberals. In the Fourth Amendment context, I say... Um, we should get rid of the exclusionary rule. Okay, that makes sense. And this is going to deserve its own episode. Because we, we will do it. Um, yeah. And it's connected to the Telford-Taylor mm-hmm. discussions that we have. Right. Um, on the Fourth Amendment, I say, oh, I don't believe in the exclusionary rule. That makes me conservative. Oh, but I do think um, the Fourth Amendment is about reasonableness, and reasonableness needs to think about um, racially disparate impacts and other things. Oh, that makes me liberal. I say, oh, um, we need more protections for people who are innocent and roughed up by the cops. Um, and we shouldn't, for example, allow states to um, hide behind various immunity doctrines or government officials to hide behind various immunity doctrines. So I want to get rid of sovereign immunity and qualified immunity. And in general, that, that puts me you know, in the camp with liberals. And these things are all connected. I think, you know, I have a whole series of ideas about the Fourth Amendment of moving away from an idea of a warrant requirement toward more of a focus on reasonableness. All these things, um, and again, you could say they're all wrong or something, but they're, they form part of an intermeshing system, some of which are more attractive to liberals, others to conservatives. Let me mention one other thing right now, because I think it's just coincidental, but, but perfect timing. Since our last podcast, a very important American patriot has passed away. His name was Orrin Hatch. He died, he's a senator of the United States. He died, I think, at the age of 88. He is, he was the longest serving Republican senator in the history of America. And I want to tell you a couple of things about him because I worked closely with him. He was a conservative and I was a liberal and he asked me to be one of his academic advisors on, and initially was one of his academic advisors on Fourth Amendment reform ideas. Um, and he knew I was a Democrat, he knew I was a liberal, but he wanted to me to advise him in any event. I testified in the Senate on behalf of, actually that year was called SB1. It was the, f- the first bill and it was a criminal reform bill that got rid of the exclusionary rule Yes, but actually provided more remedies for innocent people, damage remedies. And people like Pat Leahy and Ted Kennedy, actually, they didn't like the exclusionary part of the thing, but they actually were interested in, in the, the other um, reforms. Um, I also testified um, at his invitation, at Hatch's invitation, in support of a constitutional amendment he introduced to make an 
naturalized citizens who weren't lucky enough to be born U.S. citizens on the day of their birth, he proposed an amendment to make them at a certain point eligible for the presidency if they were if they came legally and were here long enough. And I testified in support of that. If the Republicans ever come up with an alternative to the the Democrats' Dream Act or something, I think um, making eligible for U.S. U.S. presidency people who come here legally and play by the rules and, and serve their country, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Madeleine Albright or Henry Kissinger or Jennifer Granholm, and I picked two Republicans and two Democrats and two men and two women there. You know, I think Republicans eventually, if they're going to offer any alternative to the Democrats' Dream Act, they come back to the Hatch idea. I want to say one other thing about Orrin Hatch as a, as a tribute, because you know, I disagreed with him about lots of things, but he was a deep and patriotic American. There were times when he was actually on a list of possible Supreme Court nominees. Um, he worked with Democrats, um, and he liked Democrats personally. Ted Kennedy actually cared about Orrin Hatch. Orrin Hatch actually cared about Ted Kennedy as human beings. I saw it. I this, the Senate's not this way today. It used to be. I saw it uh, up close. Ted Kennedy, if he were alive today, would tell you, oh, my friend Orrin Hatch, he actually helped get me off the booze, helped me get um, off the, um, the floozies. Um, he actually helped me straighten out my life because he actually cared about me as a human being. Um, and they worked together on things. And the person who saw all of this, most of all, up close, is named Stephen Breyer. He was Ted Kennedy's general counsel at the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he worked very closely with people like Orrin Hatch and Bob Dole. Where did Joe Biden fit in that uh, social scheme? Senator, senator, who tried to get along with people on both sides. Now, I said Ted Kennedy really loved Orrin Hatch and vice versa. Pat Leahy did not love Orrin Hatch and vice versa. Um, and, 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 I, and I saw that too. So, and that's part of actually what has happened over 20 or 30 years is there are fewer of these friendships across the political aisle today, um, fewer than ever before in at least my lifetime. So, okay, so you're cited in this case. So tell us about the case. Um, well, why didn't you tell us about the case? Because you've actually read it more carefully than I have, Andy. <laughs> Well, it's, it's a case that has, that has to do with um, benefits that are payable to uh, citizens of the United States in every state, but not in the territory. Social security benefits. Correct. Um, and the question is, is that constitutional? If you live in Puerto Rico, you are not entitled to SSI, supplemental uh, benefits, and, uh, but you are in every, every one of the 50 states. And uh, is that constitutional? Okay, so what it says in the opinion is that, or in the syllabus is that the, the question presented is whether the equal protection component of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause requires Congress to make supplemental Social Security income benefits available to residents of Puerto Rico to the same extent that Congress makes those benefits available to residents of the states. And the, the court ruled um, that uh, this is permissible. That the people in Puerto Rico can be treated, in effect, differently, and in this particular, less well than Americans in the other 50 states, in, in the 50 states. And so then we have an opinion of the court written by Justice Kavanaugh, and there's a uh, concurrence written by 
Justice Thomas, and so the question here is, where do the theories of the opinion and the concurrence diverge? And I'll give away the, uh, the punchline here that you're cited in the concurrence. Mm-hmm. And not just me, lots of scholars, and the concurrence is twice as long as the opinion of the court. Um, it's um, a classic Thomas opinion, reading, canvassing lots of scholars and putting forth some provocative thoughts for future court consideration. Just like he did in the Crawford Revolution, just as he did on the Second Amendment, um, and, and he's tried to do in other areas of law. So um, how do these two opinions differ? Where, where do they diverge? Kavanaugh's shorter, um, because it's just a short statement of reason saying, if you look at our previous precedents, it's okay to treat Puerto Rico differently. In this respect, it's being treated less well, but it's residents, but in other respects, they're treated better. They don't pay income taxes, federal income taxes, at the same rate as the folks in the 50 states. And you're not forced to live in Puerto Rico. You're an American citizen, and you could move to New York or Connecticut or New Jersey or anywhere else. And, and so it's, it's not discriminating against you on the basis of some birth status uh, attribute like race or, or sex that sort of j- tends to follow you the rest of, um, um, wherever you go. Um, um, yeah, but I think that you just gave two two arguments. One, the first argument is the argument in the opinion. The second argument is the argument in the concurrence. Mm-hmm. So they're so those are not the same argument. And in fact, when I'm listening to your first argument, the question that occurs to me is. Well, where does it say that in the Constitution? You know, why is it you say, well, you know, you, you know, we, we, you don't have, we're never taxing you differently, so therefore we can, we can pay benefits. Well, that doesn't have to be that way. Right? It could be, it could be unconstitutional to do one, and the other one could be allowed. I mean, why, why is it? Where is that in the Constitution? Mm-hmm. And the Kavanaugh opinion, I think, f- focuses more on precedent, saying our precedents allow this. Justice Thomas is more of an originalist, is saying, where is in the Constitution, first principles? And he identifies a deep idea um, that, that I have um, and others have put forth, saying, instead of talking about an equality or equal protection component of the due process clause, which seems a little kind of complicated and, and jerry-rigged and, um, and Rube Goldberg-esque, Here's a different way of thinking about the issue. The issue is a very, very big one, which is, does the federal government have to treat people equally um, in a manner akin to how state governments have to treat people equally? Let's take one of the three most notable Supreme Court cases, arguably, of, of, of all time. The, the three big ones, typically, um, in a law school curriculum canon are Marbury versus Madison, the granddaddy of judicial review, McCulloch versus Maryland, um, which is in part about not just congressional power, but how to do constitutional interpretation, and Brown versus Board. Those are the big three, um, I think, by acclamation, if you just pulled lawyers or law professors, the three kind of um, most iconic cases, two by John Marshall, one by Earl Warren. Well, Brown says... 
Topeka, Kansas can't have segregate, racially segregated schools and neither can any other state or locality. Okay. But the companion case, and, and the 14th Amendment does, for example, among other things, say no state shall deprive any person of due, within its jurisdiction of the equal protection of the laws. And you can say, well, racial segregation is just unequal and no state can do it and um, and no locality can do it because they are just parts of the state. Fine. But that very same day in May 1954, Earl Warren, who writes Brown versus Board of Education for unanimous Supreme Court, he composes an opinion of the court that everyone joins. He also composes an opinion of the court in the companion case called Bowling versus Sharp that says, oh, D.C., Washington, D.C., can't have segregated schools either. And some people say, huh? D.C. isn't a state. It says no state shall. Well, lawyers are taught, oh, bowling is right because there's an equality, an equal protection component of the due process clause. And so the Fifth Amendment, the 14th Amendment says no state shall, but the Fifth Amendment is about the federal government. The Fifth Amendment says the federal government has to provide due process of law when it's taking away your life, liberty, or property. Um, and that due process of law has an equality component, says Warren. Now, a critic would say, wait a minute, the 14th Amendment says due process and equal protection. No state can deprive you of due process, uh, uh, deprive you of life, liberty, or property without due process. And also says the state has to, you know, can't deprive you of equal protection. It, it says those two things, and that they seem different from each other, possibly. And the Fifth Amendment just says due process. So that's weird. If equal protection and due process in the 14th Amendment, you know, they seem contradistinguished from mere due process in the Fifth Amendment. So, so and Thomas is um, building on the critics. Now, I've written about that in intertextualism, and here's what I say. I say, you know, Warren made his job kind of a little harder than it had to be. Forget due process. Forget equal protection. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment says, everyone born in the United States is born a citizen. And actually, when you look at the historical background, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which has the same opening sentence, basically, um, in a slightly different language. And the idea is, if you're born a citizen, you're born, um, what it means to be a, a citizen is to be an equal citizen. You're born equal. You're created equal, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. Um, the first sentence of the 14th Amendment links to the Declaration of Independence. It links to many state constitutions that say that um, all persons are born free and equal. So that idea in the first sentence that you're born a citizen, you're born with constitutional rights, because that's what it means to be a citizen. You're born with right, equality rights, because what it means to be a citizen is to be equal to other citizens. The first Justice Harlan very famously says in an opinion in the 1890s called Gibson versus Mississippi, all citizens are equal before the law. It's an, there's an equality component to citizenship and that doesn't say no state shall. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment speaks more sweepingly. Well, that's what Amar said um, 
in an article called Intratextualism, and in many, many other places. So Bowling, actually, if you read it with care, it makes this point. It cites Gibson versus Mississippi. And so the basic idea is there's an, equ- uh, an idea of equal citizenship, birthright citizenship, um, and it's in the 14th Amendment's first sentence, and it doesn't say anything about states. This is an idea that applies against the federal government and therefore to D.C. schools, just as it applies to state and local governments, schools in Topeka, Kansas. So that's my theory of why bowling is rightly decided and easy, and we don't need to talk about due process or even equal protection. We just need to talk about equal citizenship. And Thomas, in this opinion late last week, is citing me and many other scholars who are likewise talking about the equal citizenship idea. Well, I think you have to go one step further there because, um, yes, equal citizenship, but but not equality in every respect, and that's the whole point of this case is that they're they're not being you know taxed equally, et cetera. It's equality that has to do with being born. So your birth status, you're being. This is the Declaration idea. All men. We would say today all humans are created equal. We're born equal. It's a profound idea um, of of at least two concepts. One, birthright citizenship. You're born with certain rights, um, and you're born with certain equal rights. You're born equal. You're created equal. You're born, to use language of state constitutions, like the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, free and equal. So what does that mean? That means you're born equal whether you're born black or white. So that captures the core idea. The 14th Amendment was about racial equality. Not just the Equal Protection Clause, which is about persons, but the first sentence, you're born equal whether you're born black or white because people are born typically with a, a kind of a, a, a racial um, assignment. Not everyone, but, 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 but paradigmatically. But if the fourth and the Fourteenth Amendment was surely about racial inequality and prohibiting it, but if that's all that it was about, it would have been so easy to just use the words race. The Fifteenth Amendment says when it comes to voting, there can't be voting discrimination on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's the direct language of the Fifteenth Amendment: race, color, or previous condition of servitude. If the Fourteenth Amendment was only about that the domain of civil rights, not voting rights, but civil rights, they could have said race, color, previous condition of servitude. It's the same generation that's going to give us the 15th Amendment. Well, then they would have you know, left women out, for example. Um, and women are left out of the 15th Amendment. Right. They're not left out of the 14th because Amendment. Because they wanted it to be a more sweeping idea, birth equality, and not just about race. So, yes, you, you, you um, anticipated my next move. You're born male or female, and they believed in birth equality, not just black or white, but male or female. The 14th Amendment is an ERA. Not not for voting rights, we're going to need the 19th Amendment for that, but for civil rights. So this birth equality idea, again, it's twofold. One, it means that I'm born a citizen um, because I'm born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, no matter who my parents are. Okay, I'm, um, uh, I'm born a citizen whether my parents are citizens, which they weren't, or actually mere um, uh, students visiting from India, which they were, I'd be born a citizen if I were born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, even if 
My parents weren't here legally. And by the way, uh, our audience, maybe we can put a clip on. Um, many years ago, I, I, I did the Colbert show, the Colbert Report. And actually, this is what I, uh, I was asked about, anchor babies and, and birthright citizenship. And, and he's, he's a sweetie, and it was, it was a lot of fun. So maybe we can put up um, a, a link to that, that clip. So birthright citizenship. This is all about the so-called anchor baby debate and, and Donald Trump and, and, and his ilk, John Eastman and others saying, incorrectly, indeed preposterously, that if your parents aren't citizens, you can't, you're not born a U.S. citizen. You absolutely are. We don't ask who your parents were, whether they were here legally or illegally, whether they were citizens or aliens, whether they're green card holders or, or, or visitors or sojourners. You're born in the United States as a general proposition. There are tiny little exceptions diplomats kids tribal indians of a certain sort that don't exist today and um, and originally invading armies right, right but we don't or have that have, yeah, t- t- you know today um yeah you but born kind of behind you know uh, occupied enemy lines or something but we don't have that today so you're born in the u.s you're born a citizen birthright citizenship my love for the constitution is in part because the constitution itself on the day i'm born gives me this great birthday gift of American citizenship. That's not true in Germany. If you're born in Germany, that's not enough. Your parents have to be of a certain sort. And, and if, if you're of Turkish, Turkish ethnicity, even if you're born in Germany, even if your father and mother were born in Germany of Turkish ethnicity, even if your four grandparents were born in Turkey of Turkish ethnicity, if those grandparents weren't German citizens, um, you might not be a German citizen because Germany has a law of the blood and America has a law of the soil. And it means that every generation, we basically equalize and citizenize all the babies born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Long Island, or in, in San Francisco, or anywhere. It's, 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 it's an amazing idea. So there's that. But there's also this related idea, two related, that what it means to be a citizen is to have certain rights, basic rights, privileges and immunities of citizens that states can't mess with and that the feds can't mess with, and that one of those rights is in general the right of birth equality. So you're born equal, whether you're born black or white, the core case, male or female, yes, but also whether you're born Jew or Gentile, so a certain religious equality, um, whether you're born in wedlock or out of wedlock. So Alexander Hamilton is, is born a bastard in out of wedlock, but he shouldn't be discriminated against because of that. Whether you're Although born, he's not born on U.S. soil, so yeah. a little bit tricky there. Well, but I'm, I'm just saying the general, the deep concept of birth equality, whether you're born first in your family as you and I were, or you're the third or fourth kid, there shouldn't be uh, laws that give firstborn advantages as such, primogeniture and entail, it's a deep and radical idea. We're still living up to it. I would say you're born equal whether you're born gay or straight. Um, and, 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 and that has implications for the same-sex marriage case. So um, Clarence Thomas has just cited me um, for an idea that actually has very profound ramifications for... Um, the anchor baby debate, and, and same-sex marriage, in fact. So here, here's the paragraph where, where you're cited. So he says, 
even if the due process clause has no equal protection component. So he's rejecting, and, and by the way, when he says even if, what he me- really means is it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, you can agree or disagree with him, but he's very mm-hmm. clear that he, he's, mm-hmm. this is a diatribe against, yeah. you, you against could say substantive e- due process. Even though, right. rather than even if. Yeah. Um, the Constitution may, may still prohibit the federal government from discriminating on the basis of race, at least with respect to civil rights. While my conclusions remain tentative, I think that the textual source of that obligation may reside in the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause. That clause provides, and they read... Why don't you read it? All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Amendment 14, Section 1, Clause 1. As I sketch out briefly below, considerable historical evidence suggests that the Citizenship Clause, quote, was adopted against a long-standing political and legal tradition that closely associated the status of citizenship with this entitlement to legal equality. And so there he cites um, uh, uh, Mr. Williams' um, originalism and other desegregation decisions from the Virginia Law Review and Akhil Amar' intertextualism from the Harvard Law Review in 1999. Now hang on just on that originalism and the other segregation decision. Desegregation. That's Bowling versus Sharp. The desegregation Mm -hmm. decision everyone knows about is Brown. Bowling is the companion case. Let me take a step back. Robert Bork was my teacher. He was not my only teacher. And I've talked about my role models, and I didn't mention him in the same way that I uh, we did tribute uh, episodes to Walter Dellinger and Telford Taylor uh, and Charles Black. Charles Black very famously defended the idea of equality in Brown versus Board of Education. He was the only white Southern gentile on the team that won Brown versus Board of Education. Robert Bork agreed with Charles Black. Bork was a conservative. Black was a liberal, but they agreed. Equal means equal. Segregation isn't equal. Brown is obviously right. Great. But Bork said, oh, but Bowling versus Sharp, what's up with that? Because it says no state shall... And Bowling was the, um, uh, the federal government, Washington, D.C., and, and he was principled in, in that, and he stuck to his guns um, in his confirmation hearings, but, but he's saying Bowling is really problematic. Now, Bowling is not problematic because Robert Bork didn't know. He, he championed originalism, but he didn't do it. He didn't know his history. He didn't know it was easy and obvious that... Um, equality wasn't just uh, um, the Equal Protection Clause, which is about persons and says no state shall, but the Citizenship Clause, which applies against the federal government as well as the state, applies in D.C. The Civil Rights Act of 1866, the first sentence is almost word for word the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, and when you read that sentence, that, that um, act, it's utterly clear it applies in the state's and the territories against the federal government as well as the states. And see, this case is about the territories and all the rest. So, but Bork didn't know his history. It cost him in his confirmation hearing, since you were asking about Biden, you were asking, we, we, we talked about uh, uh, Hatch and, and Kennedy. They were all there for the Bork confirmation hearings. Ted Kennedy gave one of his most famous speeches ever on Robert 
Robert Bork's, Bork's America. America. And in Robert Bork's America, we should put that speech up on the show notes, he actually says the federal government can engage in racial discrimination, you see. So, so this cost Bork, because Bork didn't understand that bowling was easily and obviously right because of the citizenship clause. Now, bowling is only five pages. When you read it with care, yeah, it has all this equal protection component of the due process clause, you know, blah, 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 kind of weird stuff. But it also, when you read it with care, and I talk about this in intertextualism, I have a whole five-page analysis of Bowling versus Sharp. This uh, intertextualism is the 1999 article that Thomas cited. I say, when you read it with care, he talks about the citizenship clause. He quotes John Marshall Harlan, that all citizens are equal before the law in a case called Gibson versus Mississippi. So, so Bork didn't read the case with care and didn't know his history, and it did cost him. Um, so that's some of the backstory. Now, that's what Ryan Williams was talking about on the other desegregation decision. It's about Brown versus Board of Education. Um, many of the people who were also cited um, by Justice Thomas are my students, um, uh, Christopher Green, Kurt Lash, Sai Prakash, who have heard about who've heard me, um, Steve Calabresi has heard me talk about this, you know, hundreds of times, um, this citizen equal citizenship uh, idea. The National Constitution Center's website um, has a thing called the Interactive Constitution. Different scholars were asked to come up with little um, essays on each of the clauses of the Constitution. I was assigned by Jeff Rosen, and one of my favorite students, and Neil Katyal's brother-in-law. I was, and Neil tells the story about how they became brothers-in-law You know, in this podcast episode. I was assigned the citizenship clause, and we're going to put um, a link to, to that essay up there as well, because I talk about all the different things that the citizenship clause does, and it does, you know, it's a silver bullet. Does maybe I'll briefly summarize. Maybe before we end this podcast, um, all the things that the citizenship clause does because it's it's extraordinary. That's the clause for um, me, and I I I talk about it all the time. And many of the other scholars cited are in conversation with me. John Harrison is in conversation with me. Steve Calabresi. I, I mentioned my students. Ryan Williams is not so much my student. He was at Columbia, um, and, um, and all these others are, are Yaleys. Um, but he does build on, what well, I said er, before him, I should say, in Intratextualism, the Harvard Law Review in 1999, and several other places. I have a discussion of this in my 2005 book, America's Constitutional Biography. Come back to it, America's Unwritten Constitution. I have a, another book chapter on incorporation and reverse incorporation. And reverse incorporation is equality as applied to the federal government. But I don't, I, I misspoke when I said it. I said it first. I said it before Williams. And scholars, it matters, not just, you know, if you're cited, but who was the first person to say it. Or, um, but here's the lineage. It's in the civil rights statutes. And, and the framers of the 14th Amendment did say it. So, of course, they said it first. I'm a originalist and I'm, I'm, I'm channeling them. John Marshall Harlan, the elder, the great dissenter in Plessy said it. And he says this in Plessy as well as Gibson versus Mississippi. He says all citizens are equal before the law. He quotes that actually in his Plessy dissent. So he said it clearly. You know who else said it clearly before Kilimar? Oh, my hero, role model, Charles Black said it very clearly. He understood the significance of the citizenship clause. So 
I'm standing on the shoulders of the folks who came before me. In Congress, the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments. In the courts, the great John Marshall Harlan, the great, uh, the elder, the, uh, dissent, the great dissenter in um, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. In the academy, the great Charles Black, the only white Southern Gentile who, um, on, on the team that won Brown versus Board of Education, and who wrote a very famous article, which we talked about, on the lawfulness of the desegregation decisions. So um, Ryan Williams, in turn, is building on some of uh, us um, in, in, in his essay. Um, now, in order to get the piece accepted for publication for by law reviews, which are edited by students, he may have, I think, sort of presented his own theory as a little bit more original cause, um, and maybe not said as much, ah, Har Harlan said this, Black said this, Amar says this, and I'm going to give you lots more evidence for why they were all uh, right. It's a problem, you know, so we're, so we're talking honestly about um, the uh, legal ecosystem. Getting stuff published is a little tricky in uh, legal scholarship because students are, are in charge of the law reviews, and, um, and so there, there can be uh, an incentive to overclaim a little bit on originality um, because if you just say, I'm presenting a lot more evidence for a thesis that other people have already put forth first, student editors say, eh. You know, as you say, I'm presenting a new theory of, you know, everything, then the student editor will say, ah. But almost all the others, actually, um, who are cited, many of the others have been, were kind of in, in direct conversation with me. And Thomas cites to not one, not two, not three, but there are probably eight or nine at least, maybe ten um, different scholarly pieces that he cites in this concurrence, and that's typical of a concurrence or dissent, and especially a Thomas concurrence or dissent, trying to you know, get like, a new way of thinking out there, and don't be surprised if later opinions pick up on this, just as they did when he floated a concurrence about the Second Amendment. Um, he's called Prince, citing Akilamar just as he did floating a new idea about the confrontation clause. And there, I think, I actually cited him because he actually um, floated the idea first, and then Scalia and Breyer um, later cited me, and it became a majority opinion in Crawford. So he, you know, he winds up the paragraph after the citation by saying, in summary, he says, thus the citizenship clause could provide a firmer foundation for Bowling's result than the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. Right, and so I agree completely. Now, of course, you know, he's, um, so he's empowering or, or, or reading a lot into the citizenship clause, but he's limiting it here. He doesn't limit it, but he only discusses it in terms of race. So he doesn't talk about other inborn characters. It doesn't mean he's ruling them out, but, but he's not ruling them in either. So let me just quickly identify, um, summarize all the things that this one little sentence does. I've mentioned some of these, but just to recap. It creates birthright citizenship. And it, it says everyone born in the United States in general, you know, becomes a citizen. By the way, if you have the law of the, for example, the law of, the, of blood rather than the law of the soil, you'd actually really need to know who the father was. Um, but, you know, it might, it might very well be that that person you think is your father isn't, in fact, your father. So... We, we don't do that in America. We don't have the Turk problem. Every year, every generation, we kind of, again, citizenize everything. So birthright citizenship. Uh, 
That's one idea. Second idea, what it means to be a citizen is to have fundamental rights, um, uh, privileges and immunities of citizens that states can't mess with and the feds can't mess with. That's a deep idea. Birth equality, okay? Um, and that captures race, so that's a third idea, that the race is a core example of birth equality, but it captures a whole bunch of other kinds of birth equality. And Thomas hasn't doesn't see everything because if you think people are born this way when it comes to sexual orientation tip hat tip to gaga well birth equality would get you to same-sex marriage you see because people born gay should be entitled to um, marital happiness and opera at least an opportunity for that just as much as people born straight so on amar's view and reading this sentence we understand and the court has never pulled together all its equality jurisprudence saying what things only need to be rational, what, what legal distinctions and what legal distinctions have to be much more than that. All laws make distinctions. All laws discriminate. They discriminate between murderers and non-murderers, between murder and arson, between first-degree murder and third-degree manslaughter, between... Well, let's get to the important stuff. They discriminate between ophthalmologists and optometrists. They do. That's a famous case, Williamson versus Lee Optical. They distinguish between... Um, uh, uh, dividend income and, and, and earned income. All laws make distinctions between um, mortgage deductions and, and other um, interest payments. Okay. But what distinctions are particularly problematic that get, quote, heightened scrutiny? The court has told us which ones are, but it's never come up with a unifying theory. This sentence gives you a unifying theory. It says the key ideas, as you write, born, birth equality, so born black or white, the core case, but also born male or female. This is ERA, um, at least for civil rights. Born gay or straight, this is Obergefell, same-sex marriage. Born in wedlock or out of wedlock. Born first or fifth in a family. Wow, okay, that's unifying. And the flip side is other distinctions aren't birth-based and not problematic, like moving from... Puerto Rico to New York or vice versa. And, and, and we can treat you differently because you, you moved here. And the 14th Amendment itself says you're a citizen of the state where in your side you have a right to move, okay? But when you move, maybe there are going to be some different implications of uh, your federal rights and responsibilities. Maybe you're going to pay less taxes but, um, but in Puerto Rico but get... Um, less benefits or something. I mean, it says um, you're a citizen of the state in which you reside. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say you're a citizen of the territory in which it's, you reside. It's, it's true. Um, uh, uh, but, um, uh, so are you not a citizen of Puerto Rico? Uh, you're, just a, you're just a citizen of America and that's it? You are a citizen of America. Um, and you're not a citizen of New York if you don't reside in right, New York. But are you so. a, not a citizen of Puerto Rico either? I well, mean, I, I, is I, there I, no such thing as citizenship of a territory? I think there might be, even if the 14th Amendment's text doesn't quite say that, but um, uh, a, a great question. Now, this reading explains the rightness of Bowling versus Sharp. I'm just going through all just one sentence. It links the 14th Amendment to the Civil Rights Act, which begins with the same sentence. It explains, it helps us explain what's happening, you see, because Dred Scott says, which is one of the three most infamous cases in all of Supreme Court history, blacks can never be citizens. Even if they were born free, and um, even if they're um, father 
um, was born free, even if their grandfather was born free and fought in Washington's army and vote on the Constitution, as many free blacks did, Dred Scott preposterously, erroneously, astonishingly says, blacks, even if free, cannot be citizens. Well, Lincoln's administration believes otherwise. They issue uh, passports to black Americans. And we talked about this with Ed Whalen way back when. Okay, but can the executive branch simply disregard a Supreme Court case? That's, you know, a real question. So then Congress passes the statute, 1866. is a lot like the 14th Amendment's first sentence, you yes. see. It says, um, all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. And such citizens of every race, and now it goes on. Yeah, yeah, and every race and color, so they're connecting it to race, but saying it, it, goes, be, uh, but it goes beyond that. Now here's um, the, the point. Can a mere statute overrule a Supreme Court case? And President Andrew Johnson says, no, you can't do that. He vetoes the bill. The bill is passed over his veto. It's the first time in American history that a major bill will be passed over a president's veto. And now that Congress realizes it's got veto-proof majorities, that means, which is two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, that means it's got enough to propose a constitutional amendment because that's all you need is two-thirds of the House. And they need to propose an amendment because can a mere statute change the Constitution? So the, Consti- the 14th Amendment, you see, is providing a constitutional foundation for the Civil Rights Act. So that's another thing that this reading helps us see the connection. But it's now also connecting the 14th Amendment to state constitution, the U.S. Constitution, to state constitutions, 30 of which say all persons are born free and equal, going back to the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, and that was the basis for abolishing slavery in Massachusetts. It connects, though, to the Declaration of Independence idea. We're all born equal. We're all created equal. So this one little sentence actually it does so many things, you know, and I told you before, it, it, it solves the, the, the bowling versus sharp puzzle that, that bedeviled um, Bork. And because of that, that was, that was one of the bigger things that Ted Kennedy and others objected to is that Robert Bork could uh, basically had said bowling versus sharp is wrongly decided. Now, of course, you know, you're saying that citizenship... Um, me, that we are born free and equal citizens. Yes. But of course, it doesn't say that. But the Civil Rights right. Act of 1866 does say that, and the two are companions. So this is originalism. You need to understand what the text meant in its historical context. And if you read a little bit more of that first sentence of the, of the, of the Civil Rights Act, it talks about the full and equal Benefit of all laws for personal liberty, personal security, blah, blah, blah. The word equal appears in that, and, and it's all an elaboration. It's actually a single sentence of what it means to be born um, a citizen. Full, uh, be a citizen is to be entitled to the full and equal benefit in effect of civil rights. Now, why is it such a long, convoluted sentence? Because they weren't yet willing to say it means political equality, that it mean, that means that blacks have to be able to vote equally with um, uh, it, it whites. It really talks mostly about race, though. It does, you know, that you can't, 
you know, that they're equal when it comes to, to, to race. Right, and the 14th... It doesn't Amendment, really talk about the other forms of... It, it, it doesn't, but the 14th Amendment... The, the, and part of the reason I'm reading it this way is it, if read this way, it makes sense of all the cases, and the cases make sense. What is Thomas trying to do? He's trying to say, we said some stuff, it's kind of gobbledygook. The reversing, the, the reversing corporation, or you know, the, you know, um, the the equal protection component, of the due process. This is kind. Of, there's a simpler way of doing it, and he, like me, is trying to sh- to see whether what the court has said can really be lined up with just what the Constitution actually, what what its words really say. So, um, if the court has said certain kinds of distinctions are particularly problematic. They're not like treating ophthalmologists different than opticians and optometrists because, of course, every ophthalmologist would understand there's no comparison between <laughs> ophthalmologists on the one hand and mere opticians or optometrists on the other. But, of course, you're not born an ophthalmologist. It's not a birth-based, caste-like so distinction. Um, no, it's a lot of hard work on your part. It's the content of your, your character and, and, and not just your birth status. Okay, and I'm invoking King, uh, Martin Luther King, because it's a deep enlightenment idea. You should be judged on the basis of what you achieve, what you do, not how you're born. That's what he means when he says, you know, we shouldn't be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of, of our deeds. Okay, it's a deep enlightenment idea, profound, everyone being born equal. So what the court has said is certain distinctions are problematic, not just race, but today sex in effect, sexual orientation, illegitimacy, no primogeniture and entail. Um, these are the birth, um, religion, you know, um, born um, Jew or Gentile. Um, these are um, birth-based distinctions, plus or minus, and I'm reading the text in a way that, so that the cases kind of make sense, and I'm saying the cases are stronger if it's not just judge is saying this, but you can connect it to something that is at least a plausible, maybe more than plausible, ideally persuasive, maybe even compelling interpretation of the text and the historical context of a given constitutional provision. And that's originalism well done. So, um, I mean, personally listening to your argument, I like the argument uh, that you bring other texts in the Declaration of Independence, Civil Rights Act, you know that state that, constitution. State constitution. So that that says to me, this, these were deeply ingrained American values at that point. They Correct. Were, they were motivated to in, to encode them in Correct. the Constitution. Yes. Because misreadings of the Constitution had led to like in Dred Scott. Right. Like so. Therefore, they wanted to be unambiguous. Of course, they could have been more unambiguous if they put the word equal in there, um, but. And they did in equal protection, you know, elsewhere in... Which has um, caused more problems in a sense than, I, than it's done good. Yeah, and, 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 and it's not so easy to, to draft a, a terse constitutional text. But, so, so that's appealing, but I don't know that it's, you know, decisive. Um, so the question I would have is, is there a school of thought on the other side? Do people, are, are there, you know, reputable scholars whom you respect... Uh, that say no, it doesn't say equal. It doesn't mean equal. It's uh, we can't read that. That you're overreading the birthright, the birth citizenship clause. It just means you're a citizen, and that's it. Doesn't mean 
all these other things. Hmm. Um, I think most scholars really haven't engaged, you know, the, 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 the point. I don't think anyone has really very persuasively, you know, refuted it. And as I said, I think it would be hard to do. There is a, one fellow, um, I, I won't mention him, that has, you know, gone off on certain um, tangents. But um, the f- just to repeat, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 in the very sentence that provides birthright citizenship, the first sentence that whose birthright citizenship language looks an awful lot like the 14th Amendment's first sentence, does expressly say full and equal. It's explaining what it means what, what, what it means to be a citizen. Well, it says it, here's where what it says. It says without regard to, to race or color or previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude, um, and then I'll skip part, they will, they're, they're entitled to full and equal benefit mm-hmm. of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. Mm-hmm. That's full limited. and equal. Yeah, but that's a bit limited, though. I mean, it's all, not full and equal everything. Full because equal. they weren't ready to say that blacks had equal political rights. Mm-hmm. They were trying to say everything but that, and that's why it's slightly convoluted, okay? Because you need to understand that Joe Manchin, back then, um, wasn't ready to commit to political, because that would have been politically suicidal, because um, they're proposing it in June, the elections are coming up in November, they don't have time to get black suffrage re- completely know, ad- 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 adopted, so they're going to lose white bigoted votes and not pick up um, black votes on the other side. But um, then they do get the 15th Amendment l- in as short soon, order. As soon as they can, they do it, but this one is a halfway measure. But it's a halfway measure that is full and equal civil rights. Now, of course, as you said, this doesn't and that's why And that's why Harlan says, and, you know, so, so you ask me, you're not, if you don't agree with this, you're not disagreeing merely with the likes of puny Akhil Amar. You're disagreeing with John freaking Marshall Harlan. That's as in John Marshall. John, the great dissenter in Dred Scott, in Plessy versus Ferguson, and many other cases. This is a direct quote from the opinion that he writes, Gibson versus Mississippi, which is cited in Bowling, but Bork didn't read carefully. And I was a student, he didn't read carefully. All, quote, all citizens are equal before the law, unquote. Um, maybe we can just put up a link to Plessy versus Ferguson as well, and our audience will see, if you read Harlan's decision, how many times he says citizens and equal and national and state. His opinion is not about the Equal Protection Clause in the main, which people would read. It's about the equal citizenship idea. Over and over and over again, he sees it and says it. So, you know, that's so again, if you think I'm wrong, fine, but then you think John Marshall Harlan is wrong, and that's a that and that's a harder thing to. And John Marshall Harlan is wrong in one of the most epic opinions of all time, which we talked about. It's a dissent that becomes the majority, and not just he was alone in dissent, he's the sole dissenter, um, and the guy who writes. The majority opinion, my opinion of the court, is a Yaley, a guy with the improbable last name of Brown, Justice Brown. 
and and he writes it utterly obtuse and and uh, and elitist and arrogant opinion. It's 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 bad for us uh, for for Team Yale. Um, Harlan is alone in dissent, and he didn't go to a fancy law school. He went to Transylvania University, which was very was respectable. It was, um, um, but but it wasn't you know Harvard or Yale. Um, and he's alone in dissent, and he says not just you're wrong. He says you're as wrong as it's possible to be. He says I think that the opinion this day rendered will one day come to be seen as another Dred Scott. That's what he actually says. And he is vindicated by history. That's how people actually see it today. They say, Plessy was wrong. It was wrong the day it was decided. Um, And that's what every concurring justice or dissenting justice dreams of, that one day, yes, um, um, this will become canonical, but it almost never happens. So yes, you're right. Um, uh, it, it, I do take a certain pride that these sites first appear in separate opinions, um, but eventually I'd love it, them to be um, in majority opinions. And we're going to later, we're going to bring Vic back on, and we're going to talk about this ISL idea, which is independent state legislature, which is going to be hugely important possibly in the 2024 presidential election. And it turns out that intratextualism is a really important part of Vic's and my ISL arguments. Chief Justice Roberts already um, earlier had been on board citing the intratextualism. Oh, and now we've got Clarence Thomas citing it too. Clarence Thomas actually is on the other side on ISL, but oh, now he's on the record as saying uh, intratextualism um, is an important um, thought. And we haven't really gone into... You know what that article we haven't. Know, says. Maybe and, maybe know, next time we'll talk some more about the yeah, article it's itself. A, it's an important article for more than than just just this, although this is pretty important. Yes, um, and 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 we haven't. We've talked about Supreme Court sites. For me, I care. I mean, because I'm, I'm being honest. I, these are metrics of accomplishment or not. I'm interested not just in Supreme Court sites, but in scholarly sites. So for me, the gold standard is something that liberals and conservatives cite with um, respect and approval, and they do it in the academy and on the bench. Um, and, and, and so th- that's ambitious to try to bring all those together, liberal academics and conservative academics and liberal justices and conservative justices. And then one final thought. Um, you know, we talked here about, about this um, this clause, this site, and of course, Justice Thomas is citing this amidst uh, not quite a diatribe, but a, an attack on the on substantive due process. And there's more to substantive due process than this, because, as we've said, this this just deals with uh, in, you know innate, uh, immutable yeah. uh, characteristics, but there are things that that. Substantive due process has been applied to that have nothing to do well, with we're, that. We're going to have to, you know, that's right. other episodes on substantive due process and its relationship to privileges and immunities, right. the broader ideas in the intratextualism article, which has been actually very widely cited by scholars as well as justices. And I'm kind of, you know, you're hearing in my voice, you know, I'm, pr- I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. So lots more to discuss. And, and truthfully, 
um, not all the other articles that um, Thomas cited in his opinion are as widely cited in the scholarship. So I'm trying to write both for the scholars and the justices. So I don't know if this is the world's biggest case, but these were important concepts for sure. So until next week, thank you very much. Thank you back. Thank you.